Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Welcome to Park City's Presbyterian Church this morning. Our reading comes from the book of Acts, the very last chapter. In fact, we'll be reading the very last verse, Acts chapter 28. When they, that is the Jews in Rome, had appointed a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We find Paul in Rome, safely delivered by not just the Romans, but by the Lord himself delivered Paul and enabled him to come to Rome. When he gets to Rome, he finds him a house. He rents it, and he is guarded by a single Roman soldier. But he has enormous liberty. The greatest liberty he has is the liberty to receive visitors. And after he'd been there three days, he had a discussion with the Jews who lived in Rome. In fact, there was quite a colony of Jews in Rome here at this date. He told them that he had been delivered over by the Jews in Jerusalem to the Romans, and the Romans had found no fault in him and were willing to set him at liberty. But the Jews would not have anything to do with that verdict. And so, first Felix, then Festus, and finally King Agrippa, Paul made his defense, each one finding Paul fascinating, finding Paul's message intriguing. Almost one said, thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Another said, much learning has made you mad. And in spite of Paul's constant preaching of Jesus Christ, the Jews would not let it go. So they prosecuted him further, and Paul appealed to Caesar. It was his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. So now Rome is his destination where he awaits now trial before Caesar. And he calls the Jews in Rome in and he explains what all has happened. And they said, well, you know, nobody has showed up here with any condemnation or any uh, accusation against you. And the Jews who had a lot of travel and freedom across that Mediterranean area that have come through here, they said, we've heard none of them speak against you in this matter. But we have heard that this sect called the Way or called the Nazarenes or in Antioch were called the Christians. This sect is everywhere spoken 
evil against. All we ever hear is bad things about these Christians. And of course, we know from other writings of Paul that the bad things they were hearing was they were accusing Paul of doing away with the law of Moses and speaking against the temple and speaking against their traditions of the fathers. So Paul opened his house and invited them to come. And as our text said, they came in great numbers, these Jews, to hear. And what we see Paul doing is doing two things. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and he's teaching about Jesus. That's what it says there in the last verse. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is a remarkable time for Paul. He's been, in his travels, he's been beset with shipwreck. He has been beaten. He has been imprisoned. He's been spoken evil against. He's had the care and the labors of not only supporting himself, but by his vocation, those that traveled with him. He's been run out of one synagogue after another. He has been maligned. He has faced the, the wise men of Athens. He's faced the depraved men of Corinth. He's had an incredible, he's faced the lion at Ephesus. And now he's comfortable in his own house and he's able to preach and teach without hindrance. And he does it, the scripture says, with all boldness. Read the letters of Paul. In several times in his letters, he will ask the churches to pray for him that he would have boldness in preaching the gospel. Imagine if you preach and there's a high degree of likelihood that you're going to take taken out and be stoned when they get through preaching you. I guess you would need some kind of boldness to be able to stand and preach in the first place. And Paul had been through all of that, but now he's at Rome. Now he's in this place, his own rented house, and he's receiving all who come to him. One of the things he did was he quoted the prophet Isaiah. In fact, he quoted the same chapter out of Isaiah that we read about the great throne room vision that Isaiah had of the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. And the seraphim round about and all of the things that were said there, holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah had received his commission, this is what God told him to do was to go and tell this people, to go and tell Israel. And Paul has washed his hands of that charge. By the way, I'll just mention that the commissioning of a preacher if you want to know something about that, you need to read the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the commissioned prophet. He's the one that God sends and he sends with a particular message and he talks about the nature of that over and over and over. We need to be very aware of that. In fact, that was the one book of the Old Testament that apparently Paul used and referred to more than any other. He, of course, referred to the law of Moses, Deuteronomy. He obviously referred to uh, other books, the book of Psalms quite often, but the book of Isaiah was Paul's preaching manual. And he's now preaching to anyone that'll come, proclaiming, 
And as I've mentioned in this pulpit many times over the years, the gospel message in that first century came in two venues, sometimes together, sometimes separately. There's a blending of the two, but it always comes with kerygma and didache. Kerygma is the word for proclaiming and for preaching. It's an announcement, and in this case, it talks about Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God. In that message, he's a herald. He is an ambassador of the king and a herald messenger who goes forth to proclaim the kingdom of God has come. Every New Testament preacher from Jesus forward proclaimed the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the dominion of God is always seen in terms of the king. And the king, of course, is Christ. Jesus Christ is that king. He's the one that has come. So in proclaiming the kingdom of God, you must also teach, and that's the didache, the teaching, you must teach things concerning the king. And that's what Paul and the other apostles did. The theme of their messages was always Christ and Him crucified. And this is what you see Paul doing here to a Jewish audience. And then he said, salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 28. God promised. Paul on other occasions, that he had elect, chosen among the nations, among the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth would listen to the gospel. It wasn't just for the Jew, but it was for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile, for the Greek. So that's what Paul's doing. He is settled now, awaiting trial in Rome, proclaiming the kingdom of God, the nature of that kingdom and talking about the king. And that's what we see here. He's free of all of his hindrances, all the travel, all the persecution, all of the illness, all the difficulties he's had. He's opened his home. He's welcomed all. And notice it says here, as we've seen several times when the apostles preach, just like when Jesus preached, some believed and some did not. It's interesting in that passage up there, he says that he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. It is not enough for Paul or any preacher to just talk about Jesus. Now that's, that's good enough. I remember camp, we used to sing a little song when I was a kid. Let's talk about Jesus, the King of kings is He, the Lord of lords supreme through all eternity. The great I am, the way, the truth, the life, the way. I mean, you know, that's just 
fun, we'll talk about Jesus. We'll learn a lot about Jesus. And it's all important. But Paul was concerned to persuade people. Not just to learn about Jesus, but to come to Christ. To commit their lives to Christ. To see in Christ the solution to their problems spiritual. To see in Christ the comfort for their difficulties physical and emotional. To see in Christ a Savior. To see in Christ a Lord. And that's what you see here when Paul preaches. And I think that Paul's formula that he outlines in the book of Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians, is his formula for preaching. And he says, I'm determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul knew a lot of stuff. Paul was a highly educated person. And Paul could probably wax eloquent on many a topic. Not just probably in the world of religion, but in the world of science as well. And history and culture. There were a lot of things that could be talked about from this pulpit. But Paul made a determination that he would preach just primarily central message of Christ crucified. And you see that formula laid out over and over and over in the letters of Paul. Let me just look at one this morning for our edification. It's in 1 Corinthians, the very first chapter, the very last verse. You can look it up if you'd like. It's verse 30. He, that is God, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. So we're talking about a life-giving message. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. This is life eternal, that you may know me and the only true God and the Son that he has sent. The message is always centered in Christ, the giver of life, whom God has made our wisdom. And Paul has argued convincingly that it is the wisdom of God that is found in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But then he says he's made our wisdom and, and I want you to look at three words, our righteousness and sanctification or holiness and redemption. When Paul speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Christ is your righteousness, your holiness, and your redemption. All of these, as well as their other facets and dimensions to the death that Christ died, there are many things to atonement. It is a propitiation. It is a reconciliation. There are a lot of other aspects to the atonement that need to be looked at. But the principal thing is that Christ is yours by his shed blood of at least these three things. Let's look at them in order. The righteousness. Righteousness contemplates your lawlessness, your sinfulness. You're falling short and stepping out of bounds and twisting 
and disobeying and disregarding and transgressing the law of God. It is the forensic law court concept. It contemplates your lawlessness and because of that, your condemnation. You are condemned because you have not kept the law of God personally, perfectly, and perpetually. And so you're condemned. You're under a sentence of guilty. And you are due a penalty, death. All sin carries the death penalty. We have quite a few enumerated in the Old Testament law. Sometimes we're a little shocked when we read what they gave the death penalty for when we read the Old Testament law. But the truth is, any and every sin, big sin and little sin, all and each deserve the death penalty in the sight of God. We're born in sin and we remain in sin and we die in our sins except for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Christ hung on that cross and His blood flowed. The penalty, His death is the penalty that was due us, but it was executed in Him. So now God is able because He was dying in our place as our substitute in our stead, in our room, and on our behalf. Because he's dying there for us and for you, the righteous judge can now say, not guilty. No condemnation. The penalty has been paid. There is no condemnation. You have been justified by the blood of Christ shed for you as your penalty. It also mentions sanctification or holiness. Holiness contemplates our uncleanness, our moral pollution, that which makes us unfit, that which makes us dirty. It is a liturgical term. It has to do with setting aside and cleaning up all of the utensils and the vessels and the people and the animals and the altar and, the, and everything that has to do with the service to God. It must come before God. No one can stand in the presence of God unless they have clean hands and a pure heart. And God's moral requirements are that we be clean, that we be washed with clean water. And this is what Jesus Christ's death on that cross does for us. It is a purgatory, a purging of the sin and the pollution and the filth and the moral unworthiness that is in our soul. That's why we don't believe in purgatory as some of our Catholic brethren do. Because we believe it was pur- our sins were purged once for all at Calvary by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood becomes a cleansing flow 
to sanctify us, to set us apart, to clean us up, to make us perfect in the sight of God. And Jesus dying on that cross did that for you. Now you have no sentence of guilt against you, and you're clean as the driven snow. In the third place, redemption. Redemption contemplates our helplessness in our sin, our enslavement in our sins, our being bowed down and bent down under the weight of our sins and our inability to escape and to get any freedom or any liberty at all. And redemption is what Christ accomplished at the cross. It is a marketing concept. It has to do with redeeming, ransoming. And this is what the blood of Christ does for you. It pays the ransom price. You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb himself without spot and without blemish, a perfect sacrifice that you could never offer. You say, Lord, I give myself to you. The Lord says, I don't want your filthy self. That's no sacrifice. The only sacrifice that God accepts is the sacrifice that Christ made on that cross. Then in His righteousness and in His holiness, you have been set free and redeemed to come into the presence of God. Christ's blood justifies you, sanctifies you, makes you holy, redeems you. Come to that Christ. Believe in His work for you on that cross where He freely died, gave Himself up, surrendered Himself, and was offered up by God. God Himself made that great transaction for you. Believe, trust, depend. One more thing. In Isaiah chapter 2, God told Isaiah to go to the people and say this, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. And that's what I'm here to do this morning. I hope somebody came to hear because I certainly came to tell it. The righteous, the righteous in Christ, the righteous that are His by faith, the one whose righteousness, holiness, and redemption has been laid upon them and whose robes of righteousness we wear. Tell the righteous that all will be well with them.